episode for Hillary 2017 of The Beacon, the podcast produced by Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Dunya Habash, and this week we will be taking a look at multiculturalism. We live in a world defined by cultural diversity, and thus multicultural experiences have become a regular component of many individuals' lives. The cultural contact and mixing resulting from migration, colonization, economic globalization, multicultural policies, multi-nation states, as well as fast travel and media exposure explains why more and more individuals describe themselves as bicultural or multicultural. To define and deconstruct the concept of multiculturalism, I spoke with social anthropologist Don Chatty former director of the Refugee Studies Center at Oxford University and professor of anthropology and forced migration. I think multiculturalism is a term that emerged in order to try and deal with outdated concepts of culture as being somehow static and unchangeable. It tried to kind of make sense with um, numerous cultures occupying the same physical space. So uh, I think in old school anthropology, we would talk about subcultures but I think perhaps the appropriate term is numerous cultures, uh, numerous social groups with particular ideas uh, about themselves, about their relationship with each other and the relationship with, with other groups, perhaps uh, their own individual languages, uh, religious practices and so on, occupying the same physical space. So we tend to talk about Great Britain as being a multicultural society because there is this sense that uh, um, uh, many of the social groups from the colonies uh, came to this country often as migrants uh, to work in textiles and manufacturing industry and so on. And rather than try to assimilate them and turn them into English or Welsh or Scottish uh, people, allowed them to continue their own practices. Whereas, as you know, the French have made quite an effort to supposedly um, have one sort of homogeneous culture, which is French, and supposedly try to um, integrate and assimilate uh, the various uh, societies that came from their colonies overseas. But we all know that fact that didn't happen. France is also quite multicultural. Who is multicultural? Broadly speaking in demographic terms, multicultural people are those who are of mixed race or have mixed ethnic backgrounds, also those who have lived in more than one country, such as expatriates, international students, immigrants, and refugees, those reared with at least one other culture in addition to the dominant mainstream culture, such as children of immigrants or colonized people, and those in intercultural relationships. Having a multicultural identity involves following the norms of more than one culture, or at least being cognizant of them. I spoke with Tasneem Karasi, a Syrian-American student at the University of Alabama, to understand what multiculturalism looks like from a personal perspective. My parents, my mother is very fair-skinned. My father is, you know, fairly tan, colored eyes. So growing up, I didn't really ever feel like I wasn't an American because I looked American. You know, I had short blonde hair, green eyes, all of that. So I never really felt out of place. My name does sound foreign, but it wasn't anything that ever gave me any issues. My dual culturality, if you will, I think absolutely is a strength. I think I, I view it as an asset. Now, I did not always view it as an asset. I used to think of it as an obstacle because, you know, growing up in high school, you kind of 
want to be this person that's, you know, social, that's outgoing and all these things. And it's kind of hard to do that when some of the things that would require you to be social and outgoing, you know, clash with your culture or your religion. So I can give you an example for, um, it's a a short example of when I was in high school. So I did go to high school in Syria. And um, although I I looked Syrian, I mean, I was wearing a scarf. I looked like everyone else, but I didn't speak Arabic. I didn't have the Syrian dialect in my Arabic. I was trying, I was still learning. I mean, I even wrote the wrong way. I wrote from left to right instead of right to left. I mean, I had a lot of work to do. And, you know, if you've ever been to the States, we're a very casual bunch. Uh, We don't really dress up very much. Um, So I was, you know, I, I used to wear sweaters, you know, some some jeans. And that's not how people dressed in Syria. In Syria, going to high school was, you know, this, this party where you wore your nicest clothes and, you know, you tried to stand out, you wore bright colors. And I remember when I first started, I was, you know, trying to learn how to speak Arabic, trying to make friends. And I was super excited. You know, I was going to this school that had people from all around the world. And one person turned around and they were making fun of my, my Arabic. And they were like, why don't you just stick to speaking English? Cause it, it sounds better on you. And that for me just made me feel like, okay, well I've been my entire life. I've been told, you know, I've been convincing myself that I'm originally Syrian and now I'm in Syria and I don't feel Syrian. And that for me just like really made me realize that it's not where you are that makes you, you know, part of the place. It's the language. It's how you dress. It's how people view you. It's how you view yourself. And after that, I, you know, at first I was kind of in shock, like, okay, that's very rude. But uh, my Arabic got better. And obviously a few years later, I could speak Arabic and people there wouldn't even recognize that I wasn't, you know, that I, that I did come from a different culture. And that's when I started seeing my dual, my dual, you know, background or me being from two different places as an asset. It was my ability to integrate into these two completely different cultures and feel comfortable. I would be able to sit with, you know, my mother's grandparents and we would have, you know, very deep conversations. I could read Arabic poetry and interpret it and feel it. And then at the same time, I could do that in English and I could do that in America. And I feel like that's when I started to realize, okay, this is really cool because, you know, I'm not this just one person I'm able to see in different dimensions. I'm able to, you know, understand all these things that make us how, you know, who we are. I also spoke with Smriti Krishnan, an Indian American who also explained the positives and negatives of growing up as a multicultural individual. So right now, I will definitely say that is an advantage. When I was younger, uh, it was very difficult for me. Like, I would go you know, at school and then I would take food that my mom made from home and people would make fun. And I think, of course, when everyone's younger, you don't have that uh, maybe more of an accepting nature or, or I guess, children can be very cruel also. But I think as I've grown older, I realize it's definitely an advantage because once you can shift unconsciously or consciously between two cultures, there is no problem adding a third. There is no problem adding a fourth. So I've been very lucky to have been able to study Spanish in college and, and now actually work you know, with some, some clients that maybe identify themselves as Hispanic or Latino. And so their cultural norms, I find, are actually very similar to Indian cultural norms. So I'm able to understand that and work better with them because of this uh, ability to shift. According to the Oxford Handbook of Multicultural Identity, there are four modes of acculturation. 
acculturation being the process of learning or adapting to a new culture. The four modes are assimilation, integration, separation, and marginalization. Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion about what the terms mean. Um, I've always tried to maintain the distinction between um, uh, integration and assimilation, and that comes out of my own fieldwork in the Middle East. But just for a second, I'll use the British example. I think the British social policy doesn't make a distinction that when they talk about integration, they actually mean both. Um, I'll, what I'll do is make a distinction, and that is that integration, but not assimilation, uh, social groups are encouraged to maintain a lot of their cultural features, but in some ways they're actually uh, encouraged to become a little bit hybrid so that they will adopt some elements of the main culture in order to be able to function effectively, but certainly control uh, elements of their own culture. Most commonly what you see is an effort to maintain original language. Sometimes also religion, if there's a particular religion that belongs to that, that one group. Um, I think in, certainly in Europe, certainly in England, that with groups that um, uh, integrate but don't assimilate, and I think you can see that with many of the Pakistani, Bangladeshi migrants that come to this country, uh, they tend to be marginalized. Certainly the second generation often have huge chips on their shoulders because they they speak like every, all the English around them. Uh, with a telephone, you wouldn't recognize that you weren't talking to somebody who was born and bred in the UK and had been there for, for centuries. Uh, but then when they make applications for jobs, their names give them away and there is a kind of uh, discrimination which occurs, although it's illegal, that they're recognized as belonging to a particular culture that is not fully assimilated, so to speak. Um, there are cultures that assimilate very, very easily, and one of the things I found particularly interesting is the the way in which uh, the Hungarians, having fled the revolution in 1956-57, um, have tended to totally assimilate, whether it's in the UK or in Canada or in the UK. And the only way you ever find out about that um, uh, cultural history is when individuals are willing to reveal it. So uh, I've had doctoral students who come through here, work with me, and I haven't recognized that they're the children of Hungarian refugees uh, until much, much later on when they've made that distinction because they have completely assimilated. They've often lost their language. Their, their uh, religious inclinations have tended to be part of mainstream anyway. So uh, that, that is assimilation, certainly no marginalization whatsoever. What I've found, particularly in areas of the Levant, where a kind of local cosmopolitanism or local conviviality or I'm going to say almost a celebration of of others with each other with numerous groups that will use the western term of minority groups so it isn't one that they would have used to describe themselves um, there are numerous groups that have uh, integrated uh, economically and I would even say socially to an extent however maintain distance so they've, they've often chosen to segregate themselves um, although they've never created ghettos as we found in the West, but they've created areas that are always known as, oh, well, this is an Armenian quarter, or this in the old days was the Jewish quarter of Aleppo, or this is the Albanian quarter. So in that way, a kind of segregation, but a segregation that didn't also include discrimination, because often these these groups were very well educated and fit straight into what I'm going to call the, the, the professional class uh, of the society. So often their contribution to the mainstream population was very, very important, um, but they uh, often maintained their, their, their separation, quite proud of not being assimilated. Mm -hmm. So 
I think these are terms to play with, but I think they're very interesting, very important for us today because they kind of go against some of the ideas of globalization. So it's not a homogenization at all, but it's a celebration of differences um, without that necessarily being an outbreak of uh, contestation and rivalry eventually leading to conflict. Really is difficult at first. You feel so out of place. You feel like even if you look like the people around you, you don't feel like you really belong. But it's not until you really integrate yourself into the society and you start taking from the society and giving back. That's when you really feel like I'm really a part of this culture. And there's there's no such thing as one culture. Like in my opinion, when I look when I think of an American culture, I don't think you know, what is an American culture? I mean, America isn't even that old of a country for it to really have some sort of roots. It's more of everything. And it's the same with Syria. You know, Syria hasn't been its own country for quite some time. So it's more of like a Middle Eastern culture, in my opinion. But even then, it's really what you make of it. Because Syrian culture, to me, could be different than what Syrian culture is to like a Christian Syrian. So I think that's when um, I started to embrace this, this multiculturalism as an asset for me and just let it guide me in everything I do. Language also becomes an important part of cultural identity. Professor Don Chatty explains how language becomes integrated into the social and cultural dynamics of a group. What I found in my work in the Middle East has been that, that language and religion have become really uh, important markers of, of culture as it's being transformed also by the, uh, the way groups are interacting with the majority culture. I'm just going to use the Armenian case for a moment because um, Armenians uh, uh, from Anatolia um, in general, and also those who lived in uh, what was uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, before the end of the Ottoman Empire, they uh, once the Greek Orthodox had left and become part of Greece, the Armenians were probably represented about 35% of the population of Istanbul. And the elite were French and Turkish speakers. So being Armenian was about the church. It wasn't about language at that time. But then again, I don't think that as a cultural group, uh, there was much threat up until you come to the end of the Ottoman Empire. So with the the uh, you know the death marches, the genocide of Armenians from Anatolia, the survivors of which it's probably only forty or fifty percent survived, ended up in 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 Aleppo, in Antalya, in Beirut, in Damascus, and so on. Many of them discovered that well, they ended up in an Arab country. They speak Turkish, and they speak French. They don't speak Arabic, and there's nothing holding them together except for their church. Mm-hmm. And so Armenian, the, the Armenian language was, I'm not going to say it was recreated, but was reimposed somehow willingly upon the group as becoming a, a really important identifying marker of, of this group that was trying to integrate but make sure it didn't assimilate. Um, so that most of its activities were about the church and the church began language classes for the generation that couldn't speak Armenian and also insisted on maintaining language classes for the next coming generation. So that even today, amongst Armenians, when they marry out, if they're from the region, meaning if they're in the Levant, their spouses are pressured to learn Armenian so that the children are brought up with Armenian. So in that way, I I, I see that that language has become really an important uh, marker of culture. 
Having said that, I don't think that um, if you self-identify, for example, as an Armenian in the U.S. and you can't speak Armenian, it doesn't make you not Armenian. The same if you self-identify as an Arab-American and you don't speak Arabic. I don't think that, that you're not. But I'm just trying to say that these become really important um, identifiers, cultural identifiers, but not the only ones. Recently, I went to India in December, and you know, you're so used to speaking my native language is Tamil. So you're so used to speaking with all your family that when you come back for about a week, two weeks, you'll communicate exclusively in that language. And then as you kind of get back into your daily routine, you'll start mixing in more and more English, you know. So, I mean, for me, it's definitely a mixture uh, at home also because there are some ideas which I feel that communicating in my native language can be very uh, blunt. So I prefer to say it in English. Generally, when I discuss uh, politics uh, happening in, in the U.S. or politics happening elsewhere in the world, I, I tend to use English. I guess I'm, I'm just now reflecting back on what I usually do. And then if, if I want to talk about things that are happening in India, I use my native language. Now that I think about it, I don't know why I do that, but, but I guess I just do. Provost of Birmingham Southern College, Dr. Susan Hagen, comments on the changing cultural trends across the American landscape. The thing that strikes me about multiculturalism as a study is you don't study that interaction. The actual day-to-day -day human, human interaction of one culture liking the taste of another food or being fascinated with the textiles or the clothes, um, whatever, that have people coming and, and going. I do think that's what's happening in um, the United States now or has been happening over the, what, the last certainly five to 10, maybe 10 to 15 years with the Hispanic influx, with the Mexican, it's really not Hispanic, it's Mexican influx. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't find tacos in every restaurant, right? Uh, but you do now. And um, we didn't, as a nation, pay much attention to Cinco de Mayo, right? Or um, Dia de los Muertos, which we do now. Because it's a great, it, it's another way to sell a greeting card, <laughs> to have a party, um, to sort of get people together. Um, that interaction, that mixing, I think we were talking before and I called it a marbling, uh, that, I don't know that that's multiculturalism so much as it is intraculturalism. And maybe that's where we need to be heading. Maybe that's how we, we need a methodology, we need a way, we need a paradigm, not a methodology, a paradigm for people interacting together. Now, to do that, you may first have to have an understanding of the culture, so I understand why you do what you do. Um, but there has to be a way of thinking about how then do I, um, from another ethnic background, appreciate what you do, and even maybe um, adopt, and I mean adopt as opposed to adapt to what you're doing so that we create a new culture out of it. Uh, and that might be intra-culturalism or extra-culturalism. I don't know. And that brings us to the end of our podcast for this week. If you want to share your thoughts on this topic, we are accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. Thank you to all our guests, and as ever, our partners, the University of Kent's Brussels School of International Study, and to John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. 
Also, thank you to the band Roh for our intro and outro music.